drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's it's time for the gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel, The Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quarter Deck. I hope that everybody had a great week last week, and you had an amazing time celebrating the 247th birthday of our beloved Corps. And also, to all the veterans, I hope you enjoyed your Veterans Day. Service members that are on active duty, don't get jealous. You have your Service Members Day later on in the year that is your day so let us the old crusty veterans enjoy our day and have a good time everywhere that we can get that free food yummy i know everybody took advantage of that free food day in all those different places and for me to all of you thank you my fellow veterans for your service and everything that you dedicated to this great nation of ours this week on Hero Highlights, we're going to take a look at what First Lieutenant Alexander Bonneman Jr. He was part of the United States Marine Corps Reserve and what he did in his time of active duty service in the Marine Corps to earn him the Congressional Medal of Honor. In our reading of our book, The First Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, Things are starting to come more and more into place as the division is preparing to actually go into Kuwait in preparation of the liberation of Iraq. This week, we're going to take a look at exactly how did they build a home for the division in Kuwait? What camp did they use and so forth and everything else to make sure that the division had a place to arrive at and how they were going to place them uh, throughout the country once they actually got into place. As we can see, things are starting to get a little bit more interesting as the division is preparing. Back in Camp Pendleton, California, all the units have received the orders to prepare and things are gonna start to get put into place. So let's take a look at and see exactly how the division is gonna make things work to make it as simple as possible. The quarter deck. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the quarter deck. As we move now past the Marine Corps birthday and Veterans Day, now it's time to start moving in closer and closer to the holidays versus Thanksgiving. I don't know about you guys, but my house already is Christmas. My wife has already put up the Christmas tree. She's getting everything decorated as far as decorations throughout the house that are related to Christmas. So I don't know. I don't know how everybody feels. When should you actually put up your Christmas tree? When should you decorate for Christmas if you do and if you don't? You know what she did? She decorated up our Christmas tree. I had to get into the festivities as well. When I was working for the VA here aboard the air station, I used to always set up my little Christmas tree on my desk and I had my own little decorations. I had all the Marine Corps decorations, the little Marine with the American flag. I had a pair of boots. I had the English Bulldog, the Marine Corps Desert Marpat cover, and a small artillery M777 howitzer that I always put on my little tree. 
Now, as well as I had a, a string of lights that were the little ball decorations that you put on the tree and they actually lit up and everything's battery operated. So I, my son and I decorated that one and we put that in the center table of our living room. So we have two little Christmas trees up. I have my little small little maybe foot and a half or two feet tall little Christmas tree that I have set up and stuff in the living room. And we went to Hobby Lobby and we purchased a lot of different decorations that they had. They had everything on sale. Everything that I got new for my little Christmas tree was at 60% off. And it's truly amazing how it is now that when you actually go to a store during a holiday season, like Halloween, Christmas, and so forth, they put everything on sale weeks before the holiday even starts. Like right now, it's still a month away from Christmas and things are already at 60 to 70% off in a lot of the stores. Now we went the following day after we bought all the little battery operated lights that I needed for my tree, the decorations and so forth and everything that I put on it and everything was almost gone. Now, I don't know if that's because we are a border town and we are so close to the border. And during the weekend, a lot of people come from Mexico here to purchase stuff and buy things from the stores. And since everything was on sale, everything was discounted. Of course, they're going to take advantage of all that stuff and take it back. Now, a lot of the people that come across and buy stuff here, they buy it with the intention of going back and reselling it at a higher price over there in Mexico. I remember, I think a couple months ago, we decided to have a yard sale. And every time we have yard sales, we take out a lot of our stuff, a lot of things that we have. And sometimes my wife takes out clothes that still has the tag on it. Now, I don't know who else has that problem that you know your significant other will buy clothes or shoes. I don't even want to get into talking about shoes because the closet is overflowing with shoes. But a lot of those things she sold, you know, and she had them for sale for like five bucks. That's what she wanted to sell them for. Five dollars for new pairs of blue jeans, brand new blouses that still had the tags on them. Five bucks. Some of them three dollars. And a lot of people came to the yard sale and they had a whole bunch of clothes and stuff. And they're like, I'll take all of these, but I'll give you 50 cents for each. And we're like, come on, really? We're going to sell them for the price that is there. It's already cheap. It's already a very low price that you're getting these for. And of course, they're going to take them and resell them anyway. But, you know, it, it truly is amazing to me how people bargain so much. I'm not saying that I don't do that because whenever I go shopping and I go to Mexico and stuff like that, and I try to buy something. Yes, I try to bargain with them because they always tell me, oh, this is $10. Okay, I'll give you seven. And most of the time they'll, you know, they'll take whatever I'm offering for the item that I'm looking forward to actually buying. I can understand, you know, why people barter. I can remember so many times when we were on deployment and we stopped at the different ports like in, uh, in Hong Kong or Australia and we went to like the little markets or you can buy any of the souvenirs. You can bargain with them and they'll adjust the price just to, as long as you get a chance to buy whatever they're trying to sell to you. Back to the Christmas. So everything is decorated here at the house. The only thing that we have to do now is going to be to actually set up our decorations outside. Now, it's nothing extreme or as extravagant as Halloween that we do here. However, we do have a lot of blow up uh, decorations that we have that we're going to set up. And I don't want to do that without my son because that's our bonding time that we enjoy together. To me, it's very important because now that I'm retired from active duty, I get the opportunity to actually spend time with my family and with my son. That is something that unfortunately I was not able to do with my daughters because I was always deployed. I was gone. Uh, they lived in Texas and I was down here in California. So that wasn't really an option for me to be able to spend as much time as I wanted to with them. 
And, you know, I regret that. That's one of the things that being on active duty and being deployed so much, I miss so much of their lives. I missed a lot of things that I wish I could have seen, I could have done. But now I am making sure that with my son, I'm able to do those things. It's hard because so many years of me being on active duty and stuff, and it's sometimes difficult to distinguish, I guess is the word that I'm looking for, or kind of figure out that I'm no longer dealing with Marines. And the way that I talk sometimes can seem uh, aggressive, I guess you could say that. It can be an aggressive type of tone that I talk to individuals. And then fortunately, that overflows to my family as well. And that's something that I'm truly, truly working on because I don't want to do that. I don't want them to see me as somebody that's going to be disgruntled and grouchy all the time. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one that deals with this kind of situation. I've talked to other Marines, to other veterans that have gotten out of the service, and they deal with the same kind of situation in the way that they communicate with other people, with their family. It's difficult to make that transition from active duty service into a regular civilian world no longer being in the service. I used to always joke around with the Marines all the time. The Marines have their own language, the way that they talk to each other, the way they communicate with each other. And I'm not just talking about acronyms and things like that for the way that we talk. Profanity is like a second language in the Marine Corps. If you don't believe me, just ask. And a lot of you that are listening to me are veterans and are active duty service members, and you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about, because if you go out there into the civilian world off the base and Marines talk to Marines like Marines talk to Marines on base and wherever they are, people are going to look like you like you're probably the biggest racist person in the world. When, you know, with us, it's not really a racist thing. It's, you know, we communicate with each other. We make fun of each other. And those are normal things for us. Is it okay? You know, being in active duty, it's different. Am I saying it's okay? No, I'm not. I'm not saying it's okay, but that's just the way that we communicate with each other. You know, I never make fun of somebody and actually, you know, really mean it. That that's what it is. It's just that we make fun of each other, you know, and that's just the way that Marines talk to each other. But now in the civilian world, let me tell you guys, it took me like about two years, two and a half years to actually be able to understand that the way that I communicated with someone is just so important because you got to make sure that the language and the words and everything that you're using is actually the way that you want it to be. And this is something that we as Marines, service members, no matter what branch you belong to, that you really have to work at because we don't really realize the way that we speak to other people. And today's society, it is completely different. The way that I look at it is that people get their feelings hurt very, very easily. Now, if you know, if you don't understand that or maybe that offends you, you know, I apologize. But it is true. You know, back when I was young and some of you were a lot younger, you were disciplined a whole different way. People talked to you a whole different way. You dealt with the way that they talked to you and you moved on. It wasn't something that people started crying about or their just their mentality is not the way that it needs to be. And what's the problem with all that going on in society now? I really don't know. And I really don't want to get into that because, you know, I have my own opinion on the way society is and the way our kids are being raised and how they act out and so forth and everything else. So for me, it's my way, the way that I do it. And everybody has their own way. 
But, you know, in reality, a lot of people nowadays, you know, the generation that is now, they're, they are more technologically informed or sound or more practical in the way that they use all that stuff, I guess you could say. But that's just the way that they are. Back in when I was growing up, back in, you know, in the 80s and stuff like that, we didn't have all this technology and we were outside playing out there until the, the actual lights came on outside and then it was time to go home. You know, I can remember when I was young, we were actually living out there in Kansas, around Fort Riley, Kansas, because that's where my dad was stationed at the time. And I can remember being out on my bike with my friends all day long. And we took turns really eating during the day at everybody's house every once in a while. Sometimes they came over my house. We had sandwiches, snacks, whatever. Other times we were at other friends' houses and they, you know, their mothers gave us different kinds of food and stuff for us to eat. But that was just the way that it was back then. And, you know, I tell my son that all the time and I tell him, hey, you know, this is what I used to do every day and all that. And starting, you know, actually last month, he has been more interactive with me to go outside and do things and not stay inside all day long because I want him to understand that there's other things that can be done besides staying inside, looking at your phone, watching videos video games yeah those things are nice they're good to have but like i told him hey those are things you know they're a privilege it's not a right for you to have all these things a cell phone is a right that you have because you know your parents allow you to have it it's not necessary i never had a cell phone growing up i had a tv that we had in the living room there was no tv in my room at all whatsoever i can i remember having the bunny ears on my TV that we had to move them around and try to get a reception because the TV just wouldn't come in back then. That's all that we had. And I remember having the pliers on the TV, turning the channel and stuff because that's all we had. Uh, we had that and the pliers and stuff. And it was the same pliers that we use sometimes on the stove because you know, that the knob fell off and that's what we had to do. So as you guys can see, you know, a lot of things change after you get out of the service. In the last past couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about the VA. And I want you to make sure that you remember all that. Don't forget about the things that you're eligible to apply for. It is very, very important for you to do that. I run into veterans all the time and I explain to them about the benefits that are there. But remember, those benefits are there for you. And if you always have any questions or anything like that, you can message me on the Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs on my Facebook page. Send me a question. Send me a message on there. That way I can get to your question and we can take time and actually answer it in the podcast or I can contact you directly via an email or a message. And lastly, always remember to go to va.gov to get any of your questions answered. And remember, work on your people skills. Learn how to communicate with people now that you're out of the service. The Quarter Deck is brought to you by Miguel Science Photography. From the beginning of your family to the first birthday and beyond. Whether it's a retirement or a Marine Corps ball, Miguel Science Photography is there to make memories that will last a lifetime. Miguel Science Photography is a certified veteran-owned business. Contact them at miguelsciencephotography.com. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. It is finally time for the 1st Marine Division to start building their home overseas to start getting the division in place. So let's take a look at this week in our reading of the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, no better friend, no worst enemy. When the forward CP staff arrived in Kuwait, the expense of desert 
that would eventually become home of the division's more than 20,000 Marines and sailors, as well as the growing number of soldiers that had joined the division's ranks in a variety of combat specialties, was bare ground and blowing sands. The forward division engineer, Major Dan Longwell, had begun the terrain management planning in late summer of 2002, but it had not progressed past the circles drawn on a map by the time the division forward CP arrived in country. Raising the camps would require a significant outlay of funds, and making this commitment was a large step with strategic overtones. Over the course of the three months, the plan of Tactical Assembly Area, TAA, Coyote, would mature into the life support areas, LSAs, that provided food, shelter, shower, and sanitation facilities to units as they arrived in country. The division's LSAs were collectively referred to as Camp Matilda. Now, Camp Matilda was a place, if you can imagine, heading on a bus in darkness and arriving in a place that had a bunch of tents that was circled by berms, security at the entrance. But you got there, and it was eerily quiet. There was no noises to be heard anywhere. And everywhere you looked, it was just pitch black. It was so quiet that it just seemed like a horror film with not even a bird chirping or anything like that flying around. So it, it was a very, very quick and eerie experience that, you know, that I had never felt before. But it was something that you would have to get used to as soon as we arrived there. The transition was not without challenge. Competing demands, conflicting priorities, terrain management issues, and bad weather all conspired to slow LSA construction. The demands of building camps of sufficient size and the lack of assets readily available in Kuwait to accomplish the construction made this a challenge. In the end, a handful of Marines were successful in applying the social energy and sweat equity needed to give the division a home. In days, reminiscent of the 1st Marine Division's training in Australia during World War II, the division began to establish itself at Camp Waldsick, Matilda in Kuwait, for final combat staging and rehearsal. The area easily met the division's need for training ranges, living areas, and storage space. Driven by the likelihood that units would arrive in Kuwait and could immediately step off onto the attack, the commanding general's intent was to live in Australia as possible during the short time period that units would be there. In November, the plan consisted of circles drawn on a map with TAA Coyote and unit names assigned to the circles. A reconnaissance on the ground of the circles drawn on the map resulted in the modification plan Coyote was not a vacant stretch of land as suggested by the CFLCC, but contained garrison and training areas of the Kuwaiti Land Forces, or the KLF, as well as a large number of Bedouins. Now, if you don't know what a Bedouin, they're pretty much rumors that are out there in the middle of the desert. That's one thing that surprised me when we were out there. You would always see people just roaming the desert from one place to another. And I saw this a lot of times in movies, and you see this, actually seeing it in real life because you see them out there and you wonder where the heck did they come from and they're traveling through the desert in broad daylight and let me tell you it's hot it's really hot out there and they're all covered up and everything and I'm thinking maybe they're all covered up wouldn't they be so hot in all the garments that they're wearing their head all covered and stuff 
But then I realized that the reason they did that was to keep the sun off of their skin. They were sweating. However, it was keeping them cool. So that's something that I realized and I didn't understand. But now I kind of have an understanding living out here in the middle of the freaking desert too in Yuma, Arizona. It's hot, but it's not quite as hot as it was down there in Kuwait. In December, the CLFCC released a directive establishing a common living standard for all forces in Kuwait. The impact to army forces was minimal. Since they billeted in established camps, they easily met the new quality of life standard. For the division, however, this was a fundamental shift. The austere TAA that would support units for a short while before crossing the line of departure were upgraded into a more permanent LSA requiring significantly greater engineering efforts and financial expenditure than previously planned. The staff commenced planning to respond to the change. Colonel Tulin and Lieutenant Colonel Broadmeadow joined Major Longwell in assessing and prioritizing the division's requirements. For carefully considering large continent areas replaced the circles hastily drawn in the initial plan. The commanding general's intent remained tactfully focused, and no LSA would have the elaborate berming or wire obstacles associated with the defensive mindset. LSA development anticipated the flow of division forces into theater. So LSA Ripper, supporting the RCT-7, would be the first LSA to be completed. LSA Matilda will be built next for the division headquarters battalion, 11th Marines, and separate battalions. This was followed by the development of LSA Grizzly for RCT-5 and eventually LSA Inchon for RCT-1. In keeping with the CFLCC's intent, the division planned for tents with decking for billeting, electricity for work and living spaces, showers, portable chemical toilet and dumpsters for hygiene maintenance, kitchen areas for preparation of hot meals, and gravel laid on main routes throughout the camps to keep the dust. Now, I don't understand what they meant by that because that was meant to keep the dust. Whenever they had the sandstorms and the monsoons, there wouldn't be that much dust blowing. But think about this for a second. The whole camp was on a freaking dust area. It was on dirt from the desert, and that dirt down there was pretty loose. Even though they had the areas kind of maintained and the ground was more compacted because they laid gravel, but the dust still blew everywhere. We couldn't see anything. Whenever there was a big giant sandstorm, you couldn't even see in front of your face. Everything was blowing extremely hard and dust was everywhere. Even though we had goggles and we had to cover our faces with bandanas or whatever we had to ensure that we were able to breathe and not get too much of that dust inside of our system. Similar initiatives began without the MEF's other MSCs, including the recently joined 1st United Kingdom Division and the 15th MU SOC. The reallotment of real estate with the TAA Coyote was constructed as strongly argued meetings. In the end, the 1st UK Division and the 15th MU SOC set up near the camp of the 6th Kuwaiti Brigade east of Highway 80. The FSSG set up south of the Kuwaiti Brigade east of Highway 80. While the division maintained the areas west of Highway 80, the Kuwaiti Ministry of Defense, or the MOD, and the Ministry of Interior, MOI, were fully supportive of the divisions and endeavored to help wherever possible. But as it is in most large bureaucracies, decisions at the top are not rapidly or completely disseminated down to the execution level. Cutting the berm that runs from the border with Iraq and down Highway 80 to make entrances into the LSAs was such an instance. 
On two occasions, contractors cut the berm into the LSAs only to be stopped by local MOD officials who not only halted their work, but also made them restore the berm to its original condition. Lacking a translator, Major Longwell could only rely on the documents written by the CLFCC in English on one side and Arabic on the reverse planning what he was trying to do. Similar situations arose when the MOD officials asked for the 10 confiscated third country nationals passports. Most of the contract workers were not Kuwaitis. Major Longwell spent several nights at MOD headquarters at Ali al-Salam retrieving workers documents so they could return to work. Once the information and language which obstacles had been breached, MOD and MRI personnel were obliging and enabled work to continue. From the signing of the first contract to the 1st Marine Division arriving at LSA 7, contractors had only two weeks to show results. There were plenty of competition for scant contractors' resources from among the FSSG, TF Tarawa, and other camps. While one of the subcontractors began the task of road improvement, numerous of others began construction of decking, erection of tents, installation of electrical generators, and showers, and limited berming around the LSAs. In an assembly line fashion, as one project was completed at one LSA, that subcontractor moved to the next LSA in priority and began the process again. The net effect was the simultaneous development of the first three LSAs by multiple subcontractors under the direction of the division's engineer. The MPF offload added further pressure to the situation since the arrival of the assembly operations echelon, or the AAOE. Area had to be set up in the desert near the LSAs in order to receive units, equipment, and prepare it for combat. Available funding was severely strained, and workarounds were required. LSA-1 was developed to house RCT-1, but relied on habitability suits for amenities in LSA-5's shower and chow hall. Soon, MSC representatives were flown in to supervise the completion of their own LSAs. Four to five Marine teams began arriving around 1 February and provided the link between the contractors and the using unit. For their part, contractors completed portions of the LSAs just as Marines scheduled to occupy them arrived. Final improvements to the route leading to the AOE area wrapped up the first truck from the offload rolled up to the gate. In each LSA, commanders had 60 large tents for billeting Marines, 22 medium tents for billeting staff and SEALs and officers, and 22 smaller tents for other billeting. 15 shower units, 200 portable chemical toilets, 5 generators, 50 dumpsters, and 1 food preparation area completed each facility. Marines would have to transit to the Urati Range complex to fire large caliber weapons, but found room within the TAA to fire small caliber weapons. Now think about this for a second. These camps were being finished at the same time that the units that were supposed to occupy them were showing up. Now I can remember when we first got there from the airport in Kuwait, we got bused into the camp. Now we arrived at Camp Coyote first. We stayed there for maybe a day or two, and then we were transported again from there in buses in the camouflage of darkness to Camp Matilda, which was going to be our permanent home until we received the orders to go ahead and move across the border of Kuwait into Iraq. So these areas where we were staying at were a bunch of tents, smaller tents, and a chow hall. 
one chow hall for all these Marines that were in there. So you can imagine the line that formed every single morning during lunch and evening chow to go ahead and get a meal to eat, which is nothing new. We were used to standing in line. Now, I know I get a lot of complaints from people every time I go to stores now, and they complain when they're standing in line waiting for a cashier. And inside, I just kind of laugh. I smirk inside because they have no clue what it means to stand in line just to get a bite to eat, to get some food. Or standing in line at the ship store just to buy a couple of things that you want to buy. You're in line for an hour, sometimes two, just waiting to get your turn to get in there and buy some gum, a soda or even a can of Pringles. So again, the 1st Marine Division is hitting in. They are arriving into their camp. Next week, we'll talk about the embarkation deployment and the offload operation that the division went through to get everybody prepared and actually get all their equipment now that they were heading into country. Hero Hero highlight. First Lieutenant Alexander Bonneman Jr. of Knoxville, Tennessee, who gallantly gave his life in the battle for Betio Island, Tarawa, Atoll, Gilbert Islands on 22 November 1943, was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest military award for heroism. The Medal of Honor was presented to his teenage daughter by Secretary of the Navy James F. Forrestraw during ceremonies at the Navy Department, Washington, D.C., 22 January of 1947. Alexander Sandy Bonneman Jr. was born in Atlanta, Georgia on 2 May of 1910. But when he was two years old, his family moved to Knoxville. His father was president of the Blue Diamond Coal Company of Knoxville. As a youth, he attended Miss J.A. Thackton School in Knoxville and graduated from Newman School in Lakewood, New Jersey. Before entering Princeton University, He was a first stringer in Princeton's football team until he left school in 1930. He enlisted in the Army Air Force as a flying cadet on 28 June 1932 and was sent to the pre-flight school at Randolphville, Texas. He was honorably discharged 19 September of 1932. Following his discharge, he went to work with his father, whose firm was one of the largest coal mining companies in the United States. In 1938, he acquired his own copper mine in the mountains about 60 miles from Santa Fe, New Mexico. When he decided to join the Marines in July of 1942, he enlisted as a private in Phoenix, Arizona. Subsequently, he received his recruit training at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California. And in October of that year, Private Bonnie Man sailed for the South Pacific aboard the USS Botsonia with the 6th Marines, 2nd Marine Division. Combat in the final stages of Guadalcanal campaign followed for the 6th Marines and he had his first encounter with the Japanese. In February of 1943, Corporal Bonneman received a field promotion to the rank of 2nd Lieutenant. He was promoted to 1st Lieutenant on 1 September of 1943. Landing on Tarawa on D-Day, 20 November 1943, First Lieutenant Bonneman was executive officer of the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines Shore Party. When the assault troops were pinned down by heavy enemy artillery fire at the seaward end of the Long Betio Pier, First Lieutenant Bonneman, on his own initiative, organized and led the men over the open pier to the beach. 
There, he voluntarily obtained flamethrowers and demolitions, organized his pioneer shore party into assault demolitionists, and directed the destruction of several hostile installations before the close of D-Day. On the second day of the epic struggle for that strategically important piece of coral, First Lieutenant Bonnieman determined to effect an opening in the enemy's strongly defended defense line, led his demolitions team in an assault on the entrance of a huge bomb-proof shelter which contained approximately 150 Japanese soldiers. This strong point was inflicting heavy casualties upon the Marines and was holding up their advance. The enemy position was about 40 yards forward of the Marine lines. First Lieutenant Bonnieman advanced his team to the mouth of the position killing many of the defenders before they were forced to withdraw to replenish their supply of ammunition and grenades. On the third and final day of the Tarawa battle, he renewed his attack upon the enemy position, leading his men in the placing of flamethrowers and demolitions in both mouths of the cave. Realizing the seizure of the formidable bastion was imperative to make the marine attack successful, First Lieutenant Bonnieman pressed his attack and gained the top of the structure flushing more than 100 of its occupants into the open where they were shot down. Assailed by additional Japanese, he stood at the forward edge of the position and killed three of the attackers before he fell mortally wounded. His men beat off the counterattack and broke the back of the resistance. The island was declared secured on the day of First Lieutenant Bonnieman's death. In addition to the Medal of Honor, First Lieutenant Bonnieman was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart, Presidential Unit Citation, Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with three Bronze Stars, and the World War II Victory Medal. The Quarterdeck. What a great look back at First Lieutenant Alexander Bonnieman when he won that Congressional Medal of Honor back in World War II. Now that the 1st Marine Division is actually getting their billeting into place, let me tell you guys, it brings back so many memories, especially when they're talking about Camp Matilda, which is where we stayed, the 11th Marines. That is where we went to, and that's where we did our training in preparation of actually crossing the border from Kuwait into Iraq. So it's going to start to get a little bit more sentimental. And a lot of you that are listening to me have been there as well. You can recall and remember what it was like. I don't know what it is for you guys, but for me, you can remember the sounds, the smells, the things that you saw there when we were there. You know, the things that we did every single day, waking up in the morning, the lines we had to wear, carrying our gas mask, all those things that we went through. But it's a good way to look at it. You know, it's a way to actually vent and to get those feelings out to make sure that, you know, we don't forget what we did, but as a way for us to cope with it, to actually understand exactly what it is that we did and understand that it is something that is going to be part of our lives for the rest of the years that we are here until we receive our final orders to our final destinations and stand post up in heaven's gates. That's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. 
So that's a great thing. And always remember now that we're heading closer and closer to the holidays, we have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas, we have New Year's. Remember that there are people out there that do care about you, that love you, and that are there to listen to you if there's something that brings back memories, or maybe you're just having a hard time, you feel lonely. Don't forget that there are people out here that are willing to listen to you and to guide you in the right direction that you may need to, to get help, to get assistance. So never forget that. Until next week, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. Yes, the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.